0: We have been studying this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul had been involved in planting a church in Corinth uh, several years prior to the writing of this letter. Uh, Corinth was a city of much business and much evil. It was a very worldly city. Uh, It was a commercial uh, headquarters and uh, everything Under the sun could be found in Corinth, but not the gospel. Until the Apostle Paul, in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, took the gospel to Corinth. And for 18 months, the Apostle Paul and some of his fellow workers uh, proclaimed Christ and him crucified. Sinners were saved by the gospel of Christ, forgiven of all of their sin, past, present and future freed from the power of sin over their lives, adopted into God's family, given the Holy Spirit, who began a work of sanctification in their lives to make them more and more like Jesus and to equip them for ministry. Paul has been away from Corinth, and he's received a variety of reports uh, from this new church. And some of the things he's received in these reports are quite concerning. And so Paul writes this letter Uh, to the church. He would like to be there. He cannot yet be there, uh, but he writes this letter. And in this letter, he addresses some of the problems uh, that existed in this young church. And uh, here in the sixth chapter, we come to another problem uh, that existed in the church that Paul addresses. Now, this problem was not unique to this church. The Holy Spirit understood that this would be an issue in many churches. And so these things are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as part of Scripture, uh, which are meant for our edification. And so this is not just for the church in Corinth. We as a church need to hear these things that the Holy Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul to write to this young church. I'm going to read to us chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Please stand in honor of the Word of God, if you are able. Chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. In the last chapter, in verse 12 of chapter 5, Paul spoke of the church's responsibility to judge those who are inside the church meaning disciplining disciplining and excommunicating members who are in sin and will not repent. And now our text in chapter 6 speaks about another kind of judgment that must take place within the church. That is settling disputes between members. The, The sorts of disputes that unbelievers would take to court. The sorts of disputes that unbelievers would file a lawsuit over. As we look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we'll first of all see the problem of suing another Christian. Second, we will see the church's competency to settle disputes between Christians. And thirdly, the defeat of suing another Christian. First of all, the problem of suing another Christian. Look closely with me at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another... Now, here Paul uses a technical term for a lawsuit or legal action, which is why the Net Bible translates this when one of you has a legal dispute with another. The context makes it clear that Paul is talking about issues over which we might sue another person. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Maybe someone damaged your property. And refuses to compensate you for the damage. Or maybe you were injured because of another person's negligence and they refused to pay your medical bills. Or maybe your employer refuses to pay you wages that you have earned. Or maybe you had a contract with someone and then they broke the contract and now they refuse to make it right. Paul is talking about these sorts of issues. He is not talking in this passage about being the victim of a crime or being a witness to a crime. For example, a a burglar breaks into your house and steals things worth $5,000. That's a crime. Or someone murders your family member. That's a crime. God has given what what Paul calls the sword in Romans 13, verse 4, only to civil government, and he has not given the sword to the church. The sword is the authority to, as Paul puts it in Romans thirteen four, avenge evil. Uh, the, that God has not given the church the authority to, as Paul also puts it, carry out God's wrath on evildoers. The sword is given to the civil government uh, to avenge evil, to carry out God's wrath on evildoers, not to the church. When a serious crime has been committed, a Christian should press charges, no matter if the criminal is a Christian or not, because justice matters. Our text has nothing to do with pressing charges for a crime. Our text has to do with disputes over which a person might file a lawsuit. Very different than criminal activity. Uh, Look with me again at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul is not talking about a dispute between a believer and an unbeliever. We have the civil courts for those things. He is talking about a dispute between believers. As becomes especially clear in verse 5, If you look at verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? He's talking about a dispute between two brothers or sisters in Christ. The apostle is asking in verse 1, When you have a grievance against a brother in Christ, do you dare go to court with it? Instead of looking to other believers to settle the dispute, this passage rebukes the Corinthian believers for suing each other in court rather than looking to others in the church to try their cases. In Corinth, one could take another person before the civil magistrates at at what was called the bema, or we could translate the bema, the, the judgment seat, which was publicly located at the heart of the marketplace. Some of the Corinthian believers were doing this to fellow believers. They were taking them to the Bema. They were taking them to the law court in Corinth. Now, our text says the believer must not dare to do so. Rather, the two brothers are to bring their case to the saints, meaning to other believers. we have already seen that every believer in Christ is a saint. Salvation makes the believer a saint, a holy one someone set apart by God from the world, from sin, unto himself for his service. And Paul says that when we have a dispute with another brother in Christ, we're not to take it to the law courts, we are to take it to the saints. We're to take it to other believers in order to receive the help that we need in settling the dispute. Now, this would only be after the grieved brother tries to resolve the issue with the brother, just the two of them. Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, how when when there is an issue, you first go to the one who has wronged you, and and you try to rectify things just between the two of you. So there's an assumption here in Paul's instructions that that's already been done. That you've already gone to the brother, you've tried to, to settle this dispute between the two of you, and you have not been able to settle it then it would be take it to some of the saints. Take it to a brother or or sister for them to help you to settle this dispute. Take it to someone in the church. They are to bring their case to the saints and be willing to abide by the decision of the saints, whatever that decision might be. Now, why is this the way to resolve civil cases between Christians? We will find answers in our text. The first answer regards the church's church's competency to settle disputes between Christians. That's the next section of our text, the church's competency to settle disputes between Christians. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul says something that really uh, is amazing. He says, "Do you not know that the saints will judge the world?" We, we, we do learn this from several passages that we will judge the world in the future. In, in Matthew 19:28, Jesus said to his disciples, "Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne." You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 11b through 12a, we read the apostle Paul say, If we have died with him that is with Christ Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's amazing. That we who are in Christ will one day reign with Christ. He will share with us his reign over the nations. This is by virtue of union with Christ. By virtue of union with the King of Kings, we will reign with him. And part of reigning is judging. So reigning with Christ implies that we will be involved in judging. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27 are the words of the the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ to the church in Thyatira. And Christ says to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To conquer is to persevere in the faith to the end. It's to overcome. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Statement that implies judging. Again, we will reign with Christ, we will rule with Christ, and that will include, in some sense, judging the world. Now, the the Bible does not reveal anything more specific about this. This might arouse your curiosity. Well, what's it going to look like? What's it going to involve for us to judge the world? We don't know. We don't need to know. If we need to know, the Bible will tell us. It doesn't tell us. We just know that it's going to happen. Coming back to our text, Paul's point is, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Settling disputes between brothers of the sort that go to court are trivial in comparison to judging the world. That's what Paul wants us to see. If something happens between ourselves and another brother in the church, there's a dispute about being compensated for damage or something like that, a a contract being broken. There's a dispute between two of us. And you compare that to how we will judge the world? Judging this is trivial in comparison. Paul wants us to see that. Judging the world is like doing the work of the Supreme Court of the United States, while judging between brothers is like doing the work of a local justice of the peace. Our text says, if the church will judge the world in the future, then we are competent to try cases between brothers now. Paul spoke of our competency back in chapter 1. I want you to go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2. Paul wanted the Corinthians from the beginning to understand what they have in Christ. He says in verse 2, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Notice that. As believers in Christ, we have been enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. We saw Paul is talking to the church, not saying a Christian has every spiritual gift, but the local church has every gift given to its members that are needed by that congregation. So you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have much in Christ Jesus, individually as believers and corporately as a church. And you come back to our text in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul's point is that we as the church, who one day will judge the world, we're competent now to try cases between brothers. We we have the scriptures, which is the standard for how we are to relate to one another, how we are to live. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, who gives us understanding of the scriptures, who gives us wisdom, who gives us the wisdom to apply the scriptures to the issues of life. While not every believer is at a sufficient maturity level to try cases between brothers, Paul is teaching that the local church is competent to do so. And he goes on in verse 3 to reinforce this. He says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Again, it might be striking to you to read, We are to judge angels. Where, Where do we find that? Well, we certainly find it here. This is en- enough reason to believe it. But we also do find some other indications in Scripture. Ephesians 1 speaks of Christ being exalted over the angels. Ephesians 1 verse 19 says, Paul prays that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. to a position of authority over all things, including authority over all the angelic beings. They're referred to here. It's just You don't find the word angels, but they're referred to here. He's in a position over all the authorities. And if we are going to rule and to reign with Christ, and Christ is in a position of authority over the angels, and if Christ will judge the angels then somehow we also will be involved with Christ in judging the angels. It's an amazing thought. What Paul says here is, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? In other words, if believers will judge supernatural beings... They should certainly be able to judge matters in the natural world involving the ordinary things of life. Paul goes on in verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Those who have no standing in the church are means unbelievers, the people of the world. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before the world? Why do you lay them before unbelievers? Even without a degree in law, there are members in the church who are competent to settle disputes between Christians. This is because for Christians, it is not about taking every penny that the laws of the land would allow you to take. Rather, it's about settling the dispute in a way that is just in God's eyes. This is something that believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, fully submitted to God, and filled with the wisdom that comes from the Scriptures, are competent to do, to settle such disputes between brothers. But the Corinthian church had failed to do this. Instead, believers were suing believers. And so the apostle, in rebuking this, writes about the defeat of suing another Christian. That's the last section, verses 5 through 8, the the defeat of suing another Christian. Look at verse 5 in our text. Paul says, I say this to your shame. The Corinthians knew better than to take their brothers to court. And the apostle rebukes them so they will be ashamed of the ungodly way that they are living, that they will repent and they will start doing what pleases the Lord. Sometimes, you know, we know the right thing to do, but we do not do it because we want to get our own way. Apparently, there were some in the church who thought they might not get their way. If they take the issue to the church, I might do better in the civil courts. I'm going to go there. I'm going to try to get every penny I can get. Sometimes we know the right thing to do, but we do not do it because we want to get our own way. And we need to be rebuked for it. Oftentimes in the courts, people are not seeking what is just, but are seeking everything they possibly can get. But in the church, that does not fly. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Paul is saying, can it be that in your local congregation, there is not a single person wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? No one wise enough to render a fair judgment? Now, we saw in earlier chapters that the Corinthians prided themselves in their wisdom, just as their, their culture prided itself in wisdom. Paul's using strong words here. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He's saying it's already a loss for you. Before the judge renders a decision, both parties have already lost. Whatever the results of the lawsuit, in God's eyes, it is a loss. When a brother in Christ goes to court against another brother, they lose spiritually before the case is even heard. A believer discredits the power, wisdom, and work of God when he tries to get what he wants from a fellow believer through the judgment of unbelievers. Taking another Christian to court is a defeat because it damages the church's witness to the world. In comparison to the eternal matters that our lives as Christians are to be about, the matters that we dispute about are petty. And we as the church do not want to bring to unbelievers our petty disputes, which can so easily misrepresent the good news of Christ. We want to bring them the gospel instead. We want the world to see in us the hope possessed by those who live for things far more important than whatever might be gained in a secular court. The courts are filled with people who live for themselves and the things of this world. As those who know Christ, we are called to live differently. Settling disputes between brothers within the church rather than going to court is a part of our witness to those outside the church. It is our responsibility as a church to settle such disputes between brothers. Settling disputes between brothers within the church reflects something that we will do on a larger scale after Christ returns when we judge the world and judge angels. And settling disputes between brothers within the church is a part of our witness. We don't need to go to the law courts. Part of our witness That we can settle these things within our church. So, our text says in verse 7 to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Is it a defeat because it damages our witness? And it is also a defeat because it ignores the heart issues. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Say, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. When two brothers in Christ cannot resolve a dispute, when that dispute turns into a fight, when that dispute turns into a, a quarrel, What is the source of that? It's not what the other person is doing wrong. The source of it is in our own hearts. We desire things too strongly. And we desire to glorify God too little. Our desire to to have this situation made right. That desire, which starts out as a good desire. Quickly becomes begins to take a hold of your heart, take a hold of your life, and you say, I must win at all costs. I must get what I desire. And so, pleasing God goes out the door. And you begin to fight and quarrel, just like the world fights and quarrels. Begin to interact in a fleshly way. In a sinful way, because you have made an idol out of something that may have been good, but now it has become far too important to you. It's now you're willing to sin in order to get what you want. Or you will sin if you don't get what you want. James says that's why you fight. That's why you quarrel. It's because of the desires within you that are too strong. The Bible calls them idols of the heart, calls them lusts. We're not to be people of no desire. We are to be people of great desire. Great desire for God. Great desire for the glory of God. Great desire to please God and to live for Him. And oftentimes that becomes way too small. What becomes important to us is that I get this and I get that. We lose sight of what's most important. When we can't resolve our dispute between brothers, and we take it to the court, rather than taking it to saints in the church, we're ignoring the heart issues. The church can help us with the heart issues. The courts cannot help us with the heart issues. Taking a brother to court amounts to ignoring the heart issues and following the flesh. John MacArthur, in his commentary uh, on this passage, which really is the sermon he preached, put into commentary form, John MacArthur shared something uh, that he knew from firsthand. He said, quote, An attorney friend of mine says that over the years, he has counseled dozens of Christians to drop lawsuits against each other. In some 90% of the cases, he has been successful, and he reports that without exception, those believers have been blessed. Also without exception, those who have insisted on resolving their disputes in court became bitter and resentful. Whether they won or lost their cases, if they went to court, they always lost spiritually. Because the heart was not addressed. Paul continues in our text. And in verse 7, he says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, if, if we cannot convince our brother to make things right, and if he will not listen to fellow believers, we are better off to suffer the loss or the injustice than to bring a lawsuit against a brother. Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:38 through40, said, "You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic. I'm sorry, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. As followers of Christ, our lives are not to be about protecting our rights and possessions. There is a time and a place to protect rights and possessions. But as followers of Christ, our lives are not to be all about protecting our rights and possessions. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty one, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What do you get in a a lawsuit that goes your way? You get compensation. Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds quite well he clothes the lilies of the field quite well how much more he cares for you or provide for you his adopted children seek first his kingdom and his righteousness that's what we're here to be about our lives are not to be about food and clothing our lives are not to be about money Our lives are not to be about materialism. Our lives are about to be about the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And Jesus promises that if you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, He's going to take care of your your physical needs. He'll clothe you. He'll feed you. He won't give you a a mansion, probably. Probably won't give you a, a huge stock portfolio. But He'll give you what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what can happen in these disputes is they begin to take over, and we stop seeking first the kingdom. We stop seeking first the righteousness of God. It all becomes about winning. Jesus says... If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Don't let your life be all about holding on to material possessions. Don't let your whole life be about making sure you're treated justly. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and He'll take care of you. Let your life be about the Great Commission. Let your life be about living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let your life be about living for matters that are eternal and not earthly. Now, if, if all you live for is the here and the now, then what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6, 7b will make no sense to you when he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If all you live for is the here and now, that makes no sense to you. But it makes sense when the cross looms larger in your mind than the here and now. I want you to see, in two passages, what Christ did for your salvation. First, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, For our salvation, Christ humbled Himself. Here is the eternal Son of God, who for all of eternity is worshipped and praised by the angels, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And He gave up the glories of heaven. He, He veiled His glory as He took to Himself the form of a servant. He became nothing He humbled himself even to the point of death, death upon a cross to save you and to save me from our sins. As as believers, we are instructed back in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if if Christ made himself nothing for your salvation, can you not, for the sake of Christ's name, accept suffering wrong and being defrauded? Our passage says, don't take it to the civil courts. It will profane the name of Christ. It will say, the church can't handle this. For the sake of the witness of the church, handle it internally. Don't take it to the courts. Paul says, if you can't get it resolved, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded than take your brother to court? If Christ made himself nothing for your salvation, can you not, for the sake of his name, accept suffering wrong and being defrauded? And the second passage is 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Another passage about what Christ did for our salvation. We're going to start at verse 21. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. And we're going to go through verse 24. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you that is healed from sin. Now if for your salvation, the sinless Son of God, accepted being reviled, and suffering injustice, can you not, for the sake of our witness to Christ, accept suffering wrong and being defrauded? The cross puts it all in perspective. If you're not mindful of the cross, coming back to 1 Corinthians 6-7, when Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? That makes no sense. But when the cross looms large in your mind, it makes all the sense in the world. When you really take to heart the truth that your sins are many, and that you deserve to go to hell for your sin, and that Christ paid for all of your sins at the cross, And that by grace you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. And that you stand now in the grace of God. And that you are loved by God with an everlasting love. And that your eternity is sure. You are then free when wronged or defrauded by a brother. And you have made an effort to to have him make it right. You are then free to say in your heart of hearts the words of 1 Corinthians 6-7b. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? The gospel makes all the difference in the world. Though our text rebukes believers for taking a fellow believer to court, our text in no way lets the brother in the wrong off the hook. Come back to 1 Corinthians 6 and look at verse 8. Paul says... But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. When you have wronged or defrauded a brother in Christ, you should be convicted by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God in your heart of hearts. You should repent, you should make it right. The Corinthian believers were still living like the world as we sometimes do. And they were wronging and defrauding one another. We should shudder at the thought of wronging or defrauding another believer. First, because it is an offense against God, and second, because they are our own brother or sister. Do you notice the emphasis on that here in verse 8? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. We are to have such a brotherly love for one another in the church that wronging a brother or cheating a sister in even the smallest of ways would be unthinkable to you. How could I do that to my brother? How could I do that to my sister? They are dear to me. I love them. They're my, my family. Yeah. How can I do that to them? We, 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 it should be unthinkable to us to, 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 to wrong or to cheat a brother or sister in even the smallest of ways. So this morning, if you know that you have wronged or cheated a brother or sister and have not made it right, do not let another hour go by before making it right. Confess this as sin to your heavenly Father. Confess it to your brother what you have done. Make whatever restitution is needed. Ask for your brother's forgiveness. And do all of this for the sake of Christ's name, to the glory of God. I mean, th- things happen Unintentionally. You know, you're borrowing something from someone and, 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 and you, are, you end up damaging what you borrowed. That doesn't mean that you sinned against them because you, you dropped what belongs to them and it broke. But you have a responsibility to make that right. If you damage property that belongs to your brother, you seek to compensate them for that. Can, can I, you, you tell them what happened and he's like, can I, can I buy you another one? You don't just sweep it under the rug. If you have wronged or defrauded a brother or sister, have not made it right, do what it takes to make it right for the sake of Christ's name and to the glory of God. Well, this morning we have seen in our text the problem of suing another Christian We've seen the church's competency to settle disputes between Christians. And we've seen the defeat of suing another Christian. Let me ask you, is there a brother who has wronged or defrauded you who needs to make it right to you? Understand that the right way to address it is first between the two of you. If you've tried to do this but have not resolved the issue, then pray for wisdom in seeking the church's help to settle the dispute. That's what our text teaches us to do. Approach the other brother about going together to a mature, wise believer and asking him or her to serve as an arbitrator. It could be an an elder in the church, but it would not have to be an elder in the church. It needs to be someone who will be able to listen impartially to both sides and make a wise and just decision. Now, if the brother who has wronged you is unwilling to seek this help together, then take one or two brothers with you as Jesus talks about, to talk with him about this. Now, all of us who are in Christ, in light of what we have seen today, need to resolve today that we will not take a brother in Christ to court. But if we ever need help settling a dispute with a brother, we will seek that help from the church. And we resolve this day that that's the way we will handle it. Because that's how this passage instructs it to be handled. In a light of what we've seen, we need to be willing to give our time to conflict resolution. Right. Resolving conflict is not always easy. Rarely can it be done just like that. There's some significant conversations that need to be had, some significant prayer that needs to be offered to the Lord for wisdom and guidance. There needs to be some significant conversation together. It takes time to resolve conflict in a biblical manner. And so we need to be willing to give of our time to our brothers and sisters to help them in resolving whatever conflict needs to be resolved. And if we're involved in a conflict, we need to be willing to put in the time that's necessary to resolve it in a God-glorifying way rather than trying to take the easy way or the fast way. We need to be willing to give our time to conflict resolution. Now, this passage should also lead us to think about how our actions impact our witness to the world. That was the underlying idea here. When Paul said, if two brothers go to court, it's already a defeat. It's the defeat because it damages the church's witness to the unbelieving world. But it's not just lawsuits that, that have that kind of effect. This passage should make us think more broadly about how our actions impact our witness to the world. We're so used to just living for ourselves. We're not used to thinking about, okay, how will this impact my actions here? How will my actions impact? my witness and our church's witness to the world. That's something that we are to be mindful of. You know, if I'm arguing with a brother in front of other people, arguing with a brother before unbelievers, I'm not exercising self-control, I'm not speaking in love, I'm not showing patience, But I'm following the flesh and arguing, fighting verbally with this other believer before the sight of some unbelievers. Think about how that impacts our witness to Christ. That's a defeat, just like a lawsuit would be a defeat. We have in Christ what we need for life and godliness. We have what we need in Christ to handle conflict in a way that demonstrates the love, the goodness, the patience, the grace, the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we, instead of reflecting the gospel in our conflicts, we act just like the world before unbelievers, our witness is damaged. If you have children in the home, how does the way that you relate to your spouse impact your witness to your children? You may have children who are not yet saved in your home. And so you and your spouse, as you relate to one another, you are living this way before your unbelieving children. Oftentimes it's at home where we completely lose our self-control. It's easier to be self-controlled when we're out among people we don't see as often. But when we're with our own family who we're most comfortable with, that's when we're most prone to lose self-control. What are you saying about God? What are you saying about Christ? What are you saying about the gospel when you and your spouse argue and bicker like the world does in front of your children. What does it communicate to your children about what is truly important? You say with your lips, Christ is Lord. You say with your lips, our lives are about living for the glory of God. But if what your children see day after day is the two of you arguing about what time the other one got home, arguing about the chores that the other person's not doing, arguing about the things of this life. What are you telling them? With your fleshly actions, you're telling them something very different than what you've been telling them with your lips about what is important. You're saying, what matters is me, my rights, my feelings. What are you communicating to unbelievers who are watching you? So this passage is not just about lawsuits. We would be pharisaical if we just looked at this passage as, well, I've never filed a lawsuit, and I don't think I'll ever file a lawsuit against an unbeliever. I'm good. No, this needs to be applied to the issues of life that we are in to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, are you able to say at the end of the day to yourself, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If you cannot say that to yourself, something needs to change in your heart. And that can only be changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a glorious gospel that is the whole foundation of what Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians. From chapter 1 through chapter 16, the foundation is the gospel. And Paul is saying that the gospel is not just something that gets you into heaven, but the gospel is to impact the way the believer lives day in and day out. And the gospel is the good news. The good news that's only understood against the backdrop of the bad news. The bad news of the Bible is that we have rebelled against God. He has given us His law, but we have broken His law. We have transgressed His law. God is holy. He is righteous. He is to be uh, completely obeyed by all of His creatures and yet we have rebelled against Him. He has only done us good. Every meal that we have is a gift of His grace to us. Every breath that we breathe is a gift of His grace to us. A- every ability that you have, whether it be artistic or or productive or professional, whatever skills you have are, are gifts to you from God. And you've taken what God has given you to be used for His glory, but instead of glorifying with it, you have used it to serve yourself, to live for yourself, to live your own rebellious way instead of submitting to God and worshiping Him and giving Him the thanks. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. That even those who have an outward appearance of righteousness do not have a real righteousness within that corresponds to that outward show. But on the inside, we have death. Spiritual death. The Bible says that there, in and of ourselves, there is no hope for us. Because we are slaves to sin. It's not just that we sin sometimes against God. It's that we are sinful by nature and that we are a slave to sin. We are in bondage to sin. And and there's nothing that we can do to free ourselves from the power of sin or to save ourselves from the penalty of sin. Good works and intentions will never outweigh your bad and get you into heaven because God is holy, holy, holy. He is too pure to let even one trace of sin abide in heaven. He must punish sin. He hates what is evil. And yet God, who is holy and righteous and must judge sin and will judge sin on the final day when he casts the wicked into the lake of fire where they will suffer an eternal conscious punishment, While God is absolutely just, He also is love. He also is abounding in grace and mercy. And He has sent His own Son, His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to save sinners. The Son of God humbled Himself. He became nothing. He came and added to Himself a human nature. He lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. He only did the will of His Father, even to the point of laying down his life upon the cross as the propitiation for the sins of God's people. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He paid our penalty in our place. He suffered the wrath of God that was due us. He suffered that wrath in our place, in our stead. He was condemned. And having paid for our sin upon the cross, then he rose from the dead on the third day in victory. He appeared alive to over 500 of his disciples on various occasions. After 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for his people. And he has sent out the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the gospel calls upon all men, women, boys, and girls to repent of your sin. That is to confess your sin and to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. The gospel calls upon you to repent of your sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe that He is God, to believe that He became flesh, that He became human. And to trust in Him and His finished work at the cross. To trust in Him as your Savior from sin. And, and to submit your life and faith to Him as your Lord. To follow Him as your Master the rest of your days. This is conversion. Unless one is converted, they will never enter the kingdom of God. And one who is converted is born of God. Unless one is born of God, they will not enter the kingdom of God. When one is truly converted to Christ, they have received a new heart from God. A new nature. They have been born of the Spirit. In salvation, God does not just save from the penalty of sin. He saves from the power of sin. He sets you free from the power that sin has had over your life. To live a new life of obedience and worship to God. He changes your nature. He sets you free. And He gives you His Spirit to begin to transform you. To be like Jesus, and to serve Christ, and to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness unto the glory of God. So this morning, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. Come to Christ in repentance. Come to Christ in faith, to follow him as your Savior and your Lord the rest of your days. The Bible promises salvation, eternal life to everyone who comes to the Son. If you are someone who has been saved, if you are a, a Christian, then I encourage you to seek to make, make sure you understand today, before, before you go to bed tonight, make sure you understand the connection between these instructions that we have studied this morning and the gospel by which you have been saved. I hope as we've been looking at it, it's become very clear to you. But if it's not clear to you, ask the Lord, give me understanding. Show me how these instructions relate to the gospel by which I am saved. That we wouldn't just be trying to learn, okay, what do we need to do and not do? but we really would be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We really would be transformed in our hearts, in our affections, in our will, in our mindset. Because only when we're transformed in our hearts, in our mind, will then there be true transformation in the way that we interact with one another, in the way that we live before the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you The gospel of Christ. We thank you that at the cross you reconciled us to you. We were your enemies. We were hostile towards you in our minds. But at the cross you dealt with that enmity. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit has applied the reconciling work of Jesus Christ to our souls. We thank you that when we believed in Christ we were saved we are made new in Christ. Help us now to live as those who have been made new, to live as those who have been sanctified, who have been called saints. Help us to live as those who have been justified, who have been declared righteous. Help us to live in a way that befits those who have been called by God into relationship with with the Lord Jesus Christ. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.